tales of history and imagination. The following episode is part two of the three-parter. If you haven't yet, check out part one. Content warning on this one, there is much goriness, including beheadings and public immolations. We resume our tale on May 22nd, 1534. Between the episodes, the people of New Zion had forgotten about Jan Matthias. For all his charisma, his ride into no man's land was all kinds of reckless and stupid. The Anabaptists understood that they could scarce afford a prophet to be a reckless, stupid prophet. Soon after this incident, the people were graced with the true Messiah, the former tailor's apprentice, Jan of Leiden. He spoke well, was similarly charismatic, and had yet to do anything so quixotic as to ride out on a suicide mission because he wasn't the center of attention at a wedding. We'll rejoin the Anabaptists in a moment. But first, let's venture outside of the gates. Our scene today opens in the midst of Prince Bishop von Waldeck's mercenary army. As May rolled on, there was a flurry of activity at the von Waldeck camp. The intervention had begun and plans were well afoot to retake the city. Hundreds of laborers were brought in late in April. They were there to dig a canal to drain the moat. Once dry, the mercenaries would make an early morning charge for the Judefelder Gate, and then up and over into the city. But the canal job was proving bigger than anyone had initially thought, so 2,000 farmers were commandeered to help out. On May 16th, the new prophet, Jan of Leiden, sent a group of men out on a guerrilla attack. They took out 16 cannons, a supply convoy, and 30 men. In response, the bishop wrote an angry letter to Jan, demanding the Anabaptists surrender immediately. As far as we know, the Anabaptists never replied. So on May 22nd, the shelling of the city began. For the next four days, von Waldeck's army lobbed 700 cannonballs a day at the city's defensive walls. Now, von Waldeck's top command had set a date and time to storm the gate. They would attack on the 26th at daybreak. Bales of hay were prepared to lay across the swampy moat on the night of the 25th. Well, at least that was the plan. On May 25th, a large group of mercenaries took to day drinking, possibly knowing if they had an early night, they would have ample time to sleep it off. By afternoon, a good number of the men were paralytic, so were put to bed. Morning came all too soon. One of the men, bleary-eyed, peeked out of his tent, only to catch the sun rising in the west. A mad panic shot through the men, as they realized they were going to be late. They clambered into their armor, they seized their weapons, and they then ran headlong for the moat. These drunken soldiers dashed through camp yelling, Others followed their lead. Hundreds of men were now racing towards the moat. In the mottled light, they leapt for the moat, only to sink deep into the mud. Try as they might to free themselves, they were stuck fast down there. The men had awoken at sunset, not sunrise, and not a single bale of straw had been laid. Stuck in the moat, they were sitting ducks for the Anabaptists, who fired down on them. 
200 mercenaries were either killed or badly wounded. Thoroughly humiliated, Prince Bishop von Waldeck became increasingly wary of sending men out after this. And this set the stage for a long, gruelling, and increasingly odd siege. So back to New Zion. In the days following Jan of Leiden's speech, co-mayor Bernard Nipperdoling confirmed Jan's visions. He told of yet another vision, where God had stated, All that is high shall be made low, and all that is low shall be made high. This was interpreted as instructions to level all the church towers in the city. Only a handful were left up so cannons could be mounted on him. For days after, Munster was covered in dust from the demolished architecture. On another day, Jan ran through the city naked, calling for everyone to repent for their past sins. When he stumbled back to the Nippodolings, he had lost his voice. God had taken his voice for the next three days, so he would be freed up to receive God's word. Three days later, Jan of Leiden's voice was back, and he had a long screed of commandments to read to everyone. The city council would be replaced by twelve appointed elders. Bernard Nippodoling, surprisingly, wasn't an elder. He had a much more important job. He was now the prophet's enforcer and executioner. The executioner had a raft of new laws to observe, but the short version is anything from engaging in idle conversation through some murder could cost you your head. What's more, private property was to be formally abolished, and seeing no one owned private property anymore, your door must be constantly unlocked and left ajar. The children were taught to report their family for any infringements of Jan's commandments. Moving forwards a little, following the failed assault, an Anabaptist named Wilhelm Bast had a vision. God had called on him to set the Prince Bishop's camp on fire. He only managed to scorch a couple of sheds before he was caught and burnt at a stake. Wilhelm became an instant martyr, but Jan quickly put restrictions up to stop more men from chasing martyrdom. It made no sense to him to throw away all of your fighting men on pointless missions. But this didn't stop Jan, Nippodoling, and Rothman, giving the green light to yet another crazy scheme, this time involving a 15-year-old Dutch girl. In June, 15-year-old Hilly Feiken approached the elders with a plan to murder the Prince Bishop. She'd been thinking of the biblical legend of Judith and Holofernes, and was sure she could be their Judith. In short, a Babylonian king Sources claim Nebuchadnezzar, academics say if it happened at all, it had to be the Neo-Assyrian ruler Ashurbanipal, sent an army of 120,000 men to conquer Jerusalem. At the head of this army, a notoriously cruel general named Holofernes. Judith was a beautiful widow who'd taken to wearing sackcloth on her husband's passing. But when this marauding army showed up at Bethulia, she put on her old glamorous clothes and set out to seduce the general. According to legend, she got very close to the general and one night got him so drunk she was able to climb atop him and decapitate him. Lorena Bobber clearly had nothing on Judith. Well, this was the basic premise. Although Hilly hoped to do the Prince Bishop in by way of a poison-dipped shirt, 
Jan and the Bernards knew the mission would probably fail, but they sent Hille off dressed up to the nines. Unfortunately for Arjudov, a refugee from Munster showed up at the camp on June 18th with word of the plot. Hille arrived days later and was beautiful and charming. She was promised a meeting with the Prince Bishop, only to be thrown into a dungeon, tortured and executed. As Van Waldeck's army continued to besiege Munster, strange things were afoot inside the city. One day, Bernard Rothman gave a sermon containing one of his favorite talking points. This is the go forth and multiply line he'd used earlier to tell off the nuns. This day, he riffed on this line of thought, noting there were far more women in New Zion than men. And if the women were to be considered godly, well, then they must be sexually active. God commands it. But if they are sexually active outside of wedlock, well, then they're whores and they're condemned to burn in hell. Now, given that there were three women to every man in the city, this was quite the conundrum. The Theonot people in New Zion, Bernard had the answer. The men of New Zion must take multiple wives. What's more, all women, 15 years of age or older, must marry immediately. The prophet, Jan of Leiden, who had abandoned his first wife when he struck out for Munster, and who had bigamously married Bernard Nippodoling's daughter before the revolution, and who had since polygamously married Devara, the widow of the old prophet, Jan Matthias. He thought this a splendid idea. He thought it such a splendid idea, in fact, that he'd been the one that had sent Rothman off with orders to riff on this talking point in the first place. A few days later, Jan of Leiden announced all prior marriages were now null and void, and all the women of New Zion would need to find a husband immediately. What's more, all women of childbearing age were to start bearing children. Now this proclamation did receive pushback from other preachers in the city. After much debate, and more than a little threatening on Jan's part, the other preachers came around to polygamy. But some citizens of New Zion were not down with this new policy. Not least of all, the head of a blacksmith's guild, Henry Mullenhick. He was an ardent Anabaptist, but he was also a family man who adored his wife, Felice. His first wake-up call had come following the execution of his friend Herbert Rusher for speaking ill of Jan Matthias. Rusher had seen the prophet for the idiot he was, but was silly enough to share his views in a public place. Henry abided by his friend's execution, but he was not going to stand aside while the preacher stole his wife. On the evening of 30th July, 1534, as Jan of Leiden and his trusted elders met at the city hall, 200 armed men rushed city hall, arresting Jan's guards. They swept through the building, finding and arresting Jan of Leiden, Bernard Nippodoling and Bernard Rothman, the prisoners were all taken to the basement and locked in. The coup had gone off without a hitch, and he now had control of Munster. But for the life of him, Mullenheck had no idea what to do next. Should he reinstate the council and hope they too were tired of Anabaptism? Should he order the gates opened and invite the Prince Bishop in? What if the Prince Bishop killed all of them regardless? In the meantime, Mullenheck's army had found several large casks of wine in the basement. They immediately started drinking. 
Jan, the Bernards, and all the other prisoners in the basement shouted out at passers-by. But Mullenhek's troubles started because of a group of mercenaries. Following von Waldeck's failed attack, a handful of the bishop's soldiers went rogue and joined the Anabaptists. One day in Mullenhek's reign, several of these mercenaries got drunk and abusive in Evert Ryman Snyder's tavern. Led by a mercenary named Gert von Munster, the men refused to leave the pub. They were arrested. Now everyone expected the mercenaries would get a night in a jail cell and a telling off. They were valuable after all. But the next morning they were led straight to the stocks, locked in and then shot to death by arrow and musket ball. The other mercenaries in New Zion were furious that Gert the Smoker had been killed for being obnoxious. The former co-mayor, Herman Tilbeck, soon spoke with them about leading a counter-counter-revolution. Very soon, outside the city hall, 600 Anabaptists and mercenaries attempted to break in. Inside, Mollenheck and 140 of his followers fired out the windows into the mob. But before long, the mob grabbed an old church bench as a battering ram. They forced the basement door open, freeing the prisoners. The Cyclops, Tile Bussenmeister, was outside Mollenheck's door with a few hundred of his friends. And outside, the cannons and the standing towers were being swiveled towards City Hall. Mollenheck had little choice but to surrender. The next day, the counter-revolutionaries were led out and given shovels to dig with. Once done digging their own graves, they were executed. In the following days, Bernard Nippodoling was kept very busy beheading the remaining traces. Now Jan and his cohort were free to take on multiple wives. The men of the city took to finding new wives and to repopulating the city. And this was every bit as gross as one would imagine. As men seized women, and in some cases girls as young as 11, for their harems. Any women who fought back were badly beaten for their troubles. Jan of Leiden, now married to 16 women, was kept busy officiating over forced marriages for weeks on end. While all this madness was happening inside the city, we should return to the outside for a moment. Prince Bishop von Waldeck had never given orders to stop shelling Munster. Their attempts to take the city may have gone on pause, but the cannons kept firing. The heavy artillery was now joined by archers, who shot flaming arrows over the walls. From the New Zion side, the Anabaptists fired back at the Prince Bishop and sent the occasional guerrilla forces out to attack the camp late at night. Engineers and thousands of farmers were back digging at the canal. The moat refilled soon after the failed assault. So von Waldeck gave the green light to build a much bigger canal. On August 25th, a ceasefire was called. The Prince Bishop would accept the Anabaptists' surrender today if they laid down their arms. Von Waldeck's representatives met with Jan, who stated the people would continue to fight to their last drop of blood if necessary. The Prince Bishop responded by tying hundreds of pamphlets to blunted arrows and having them fired into the city. The pamphlets stated they had three days to surrender. Any innocent citizens would be treated kindly if they left. Not a soul took Von Waldeck up on his offer. 
Three days later, the bombing resumed, this time with the big guns. The giant cannon, known as the Devil, was rolled out. The shockwaves from its blast were powerful enough to break windows in neighbouring towns. The main gate took a pounding, but after a day of attack and counter-attack, New Zion stood. As the attack rolled on, though, a torrential downpour stopped infantry and cavalry from storming the city. On the inside, all hands scrambled to rebuild the broken gate and walls. But within days, the army would storm the moat, climb siege ladders and fling grappling irons. But the defenders fought back with cauldrons full of boiling pitch and quicklime. Any attacker who made it to the top of the ladder lost their hands as the defenders swung at them like their lives depended on it. By day's end, the Anabaptists had lost just 15 defenders, while hundreds of the bishop's mercenaries lay dead. The time was right for a big counter-attack from the Anabaptists, but there was no counter-attack. Jan of Leiden was not a soldier, and he had no idea how to mount an offensive. And in any case, in September, he was far too busy being appointed king. A citizen named Johann Dusenshaw had a vision one day, where God had demanded Jan be crowned. So it happened. This signaled the beginning of the end for New Zion. A new king must have a royal court and an entourage who lived like royalty. In the meantime, the people of New Zion were beginning to feel a pinch of a long siege. Everyone, well, everyone except the royals, was constantly tired and hungry. His coronation drew protests, but nothing like Molenhek's rebellion. For a while, Jan fought back, distracting from his fancy new clothes, upgraded home and large feasts by staging jousting tournaments in the city. If jousting was the carrot, upping the brutality against prosecuted sinners was the stick. Towards the end of September, Bernard Nippodoling, of all people, cracked. One day, he went out street preaching in the market square. Jan's former right-hand man claimed to be the Messiah himself, and that he could cure blindness. When King Jan came out to investigate, he accosted King Jan and the king had the square cleared. Just told him to go home. Nippodoling wasn't punished for his first odd turn. The following day, when Bernard was back in the square, now speaking up against the king, a fistfight broke out between the two men. This time, King Jan had Nippodoling jailed. He would remain incarcerated for three months until he apologized for his behavior, stating he had been possessed by a demon. Now one thing both Jans hoped for was thousands of Anabaptists would rush into the city to help them. And these big crowds never came, as other cities reined in their Anabaptists. Following the bishop's second failure, thousands of his mercenaries packed up to find other wars. He now had just 3,000 men left, but he still outnumbered New Zion two to one. Now this opened up one possibility for the first time. In late October, King Jan sent several teams of men out into the world to preach to the surrounding cities and to hopefully bring an army back with them. 
a feast was held, and then King Yan's 27 apostles were sent off. Some of the men were undoubtedly chosen because Yan thought they would be able to raise an army. Others were sent off as they were becoming a nuisance to the king. One man, and I'm not sure which camp he fell into, was a teacher named Henry Grays. News of the apostles' missions didn't reach the ears of the public at large. So the rumour mill ran wild with tales of apostles baptising Henry VIII and invading Rome itself. In reality, the apostles did abysmally. One group invaded a city council meeting in the neighbouring town of Sost. They burst in, swords drawn, demanding the right to preach in the town square. They were disarmed on the spot, arrested, and put to death soon after. In Coesfeld, the apostles were arrested and handed to the Prince Bishop himself. They too were executed. Yet another group found friends in Werendorf, so set about converting the population. They had carried out around 50 baptisms before von Waldeck caught wind of their arrival. When he demanded the town hand them over, they refused, so he sent his army in. The apostles, alongside the newly baptised, were arrested, and Werendorf was placed under martial law. One after another, the apostles were beheaded or burnt at a stake. But one apostle miraculously made it back to New Zion. Bound in chains, he was heard yelling for help outside the Ludger Gate one cold, rainy night. Suspecting a trap, the guards ignored his pleas till morning. The following morning, he was brought in, much the worse for wear. As he recovered, sole survivor Henry Grays told of being captured in Osnabrück after giving a sermon in the city square. The apostles were thrown into a dungeon, and due to a large crowd demanding their release, they were moved to another prison. In the new prison, they were tortured with glowing hot irons and thumb presses by being stretched on the rack. One day, as a scaffold was being built outside to execute the apostles, an angel beamed into Henry's cell from above, then beamed him out to no man's land, outside New Zion. As biblical literalists, the king and the people had no choice but to accept this allegedly miraculous escape. But of course in the real world, Henry had begged von Waldeck to spare him. The Prince Bishop was happy to do so if he became a spy from now on. Given his run of bad luck of late, Henry Grace couldn't possibly make things any worse. But of course things were getting worse for the Prince Bishop. Unconvinced that he had what it took to break the siege, the Count in the region who sat one rung higher up the ladder than Waldeck sent in another bishop, Dietrich Fabricius. The Taylor King and the new bishop met. Fabricius begged them to give up now Several big guns, including the Holy Roman Emperor himself, were set to join the fray. He also pointed to a large wall being constructed outside of New Zion. It would soon encircle the entire city, blocking all traffic in and out. King Jan stated they were willing to all die in battle if need be. And outside, the bishop was having a wall constructed. It had regular blockhouses from which the mercenaries could fire upon the city. By January, the Anabaptists were completely trapped. On the eve of their incarceration, 
Bernard Rothman wrote a treatise begging their case, which was then smuggled out to all the leading Lutherans in the empire, including Martin Luther himself. Luther wrote a strongly worded reply, urging them to surrender while mocking their tailor king. Henry Grays also snuck out before the walls closed in on him. He told the royal court he'd been visited by a messenger from God and ordered to head for southern Germany. He'd find them an army there. Now, of course, he returned to von Waldeck and made a comprehensive report of the state of the city. He related how the royals were all well-fed, as were the soldiers, for now. The rest of the city was starving to death. Henry Grace was then sent out to bus plotters in another city. By Easter, 1535, everyone was starving. And King Jan had promised that if God hadn't broken the siege by that weekend, he'd do a Jan Matthias and ride out to challenge the Prince Bishop to a one-on-one -on -one fight himself. But that weekend, God had just happened to speak to the king, advising him he was far too important to be lost that way. Just when he was feeling he'd gotten away with that one, a letter was nailed to the city gates. It was from Henry Grays. The letter, which passed through many hands before the king got it, plainly stated the revolution was wicked and against God's command. He further went on to state the prophets were only men, and con men at that. Grays called on the people to leave Munster and surrender to the Prince Bishop, but it was another Henry entirely who would finally bring the siege to an end. Henry Gresbeck was one of the main sources for this tale. He was a carpenter in civilian life. Now in wartime Munster, he spent his days as a guard, just eyeballing the Bishop's army and waiting for all hell to break loose. As everything crumbled around him, Gresbeck wondered how to get himself out of this mess. Now Gresbeck was one of the Anabaptists who'd heeded Rothman's call at the beginning, telling his boss he'd only be away for a few weeks as he needed to check on his ailing mother in Munster. The only plan he could come up with to get himself out would be to sneak out one night while on guard. He figured he'd be shot as soon as he was discovered but feeling obliged to protect the wife he'd forcibly married and her family. He really wanted to help end this conflict. If he was to escape, there would be no quietly slipping away in the night past the Prince Bishop's men. His answer was to send a letter to his former employer, apologizing for abandoning him and asking him to contact the Prince Bishop on his behalf. He begged his former master's forgiveness and let him know which watchtower he guarded, the one by the Holy Cross Gate. If a guard on the other side could signal him to say, hey, it's okay, come on over, he'd cross into no man's land. Otherwise, he'd probably stay with his mother, a new family, and starve to death with them. As time passed, and no mercenary guard on the other side signaled to him, one night, Henry Gresbeck said, to hell with us and struck out for the Prince Bishop, regardless. Okay, we'll get this one finished in two weeks' time. Join us in. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. 
All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice. and Share the episode, as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.